0: Amen. So thankful for the power of Christ. That song highlights that power in so many wonderful ways. And uh, we are able to remind each other only in the power of Christ uh, do we find salvation and hope and everything for life. Well, you can open again, if you aren't still there, to Acts chapter 8, as we consider this account of Uh, Simon and Philip and all the different things uh, taking place here in Acts chapter 8, as we think specifically about this theme of power. All of our lives are affected by power, whether we realize it or not, we're aware of it, kind of behind the scenes, maybe underneath the surface. We see this all around us in life, those with some form of power often like to Uh, wield it in some way to enforce their power over others. Those without power often seek power for themselves, or, or at least those who have it to help them. We experience this at work, in politics, at home, even in relationships. And this power struggle can even begin to creep into our Christian lives as well. Sometimes we fear those who seem to have more power than us. We can even revere those, sometimes even in the church, who seem to have more power than us. We sometimes even bargain with God. Well, I'll do this, Lord, if you'll do your powerful work in this way. We, we seek to gain His help in certain ways by doing something, bargaining with Him, persuading, so on and so forth. But as we study this text in Acts chapter 8, we understand that God's saving power is not only unstoppable, it's... Not compromised either, meaning he can't be bought, he can't be bargained with, he can't be persuaded. There's one way that God's power works, and it's by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And only those who repent and believe the gospel experience God's saving power. I think we can all admit that at various points in life, we we wished, right, we had more power. Power to heal, maybe. Power to know the future. Maybe you've been there. Power to change someone's heart. That one is a temptation for me. Oh, Lord, if I just had the power to reach into this person's heart and cause them to trust you and live for you and believe in you, but that power is God's alone. And that's a good thing. As we come to this text, We're going to kind of watch it unfold. And I think as we go, you'll see this theme kind of rise from the text, though it's most clear at the end of the story. But we'll see very clearly today that only those who repent and believe the gospel experience the saving power of God. But this is not just for initial faith and salvation. This actually becomes true of the Christian life that's lived by faith in the power and promises of God. Sometimes, even as Christians, we we trust Him for salvation, but then we kind of like to take the reins back to ourselves, so to speak. I'll take it from here, God. I've got this. But no, even the Christian life is lived by faith in the power of God. The section we come into in Acts chapter 8 is very much related to Acts chapter 7 and the murdering or the martyring of Stephen. In fact, that's how chapter 8 begins in verse 1. Saul was consenting to his death, and the his is, you know, we're not even told it's Stephen. It's just referred to assuming we remember the context from chapter 7, that this man named Saul was there. And the word consenting even has this idea of giving approval to it's the first glimpse of what becomes a theme through this section of power and authority. And this word, giving consent, has to do with Saul's authority. That he stood there, and as he watched the, the garments of those, the outer coats of those who were stoning Stephen, he was giving approval. Yes, this is the right thing to do, so to speak, a, a wielding of his authority against the church, and specifically against Stephen. This idea of great power, this word, there's a word great that comes up frequently and a couple words for power that come up frequently becomes a thread of this text. Who's really great here? Who, who really has power here? We'll see words representing those things in verse 1, 2, 7, 9, 10, 13, twice in 10 and 13, and also in verse 19. It's just through the whole section. Who's really powerful here? Who's really great here? So Saul is kind of using his power to oversee the stoning of Stephen, and that's how things open. But there's more power displayed in these opening verses. This persecution rises up against the Jerusalem church. This assembly of believers, a local church, or the first and only local church gathered here in Jerusalem, all of a sudden, persecution comes up, resistance to what they're doing. And this persecution has already risen to the level of resistance that the Lord Jesus Christ experienced. Stephen now dying for his faith. And so as they persecute, there's this scattering that we we'll read about in verse 1. Through all the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the Apostles. Now, Luke says here in verse 1 that all of them were scattered. And we have to understand what he's talking about, that word all. He, he could literally mean every single believer in Jerusalem, except for the apostles, was scattered. And that's certainly a possibility. They all could have been scattered. This is you know, murderous persecution going on here. I could understand if they all left, except for the apostles. We do know later in the book of Acts, there's a church that continues in Jerusalem. And so it could be that those experiencing persecution, as they experience it, sort of flee. So everyone who experienced that persecution got out of there. Some of them, of course, were from different regions, and so they may have even gone back home. We don't know exactly how all of this unfolded. We certainly know that some believers returned, and there was a continuing church in Jerusalem. Luke's mention of Judea and Samaria ought to trigger something in our memories, Because the Lord Jesus himself had predicted that this witness, the gospel, was going to spread to Judea and Samaria. And so already, even through this difficult circumstance, we get hints that God is at work here. God is doing good even through this evil persecution. Even as they seek to kill these believers and arrest them and send them out, the gospel is going forward just as God predicted. Verse 2, we have this reference again to Stephen. There were some devout men who took his body away and buried him and uh, lamented over his death. This great lamentation that's mentioned was a typical way to mourn someone's death. It's pretty safe to assume these were probably believers, Christians, who were lamenting Stephen's death and not Jews but we're told they were devout, they were godly. And so they they mourned over the loss of their fellow brother in Christ. I think it's a nice reminder that death is still an enemy. Though Stephen knew exactly where he was going, right? Remember, he saw the heavens opened and saw the Lord Jesus standing there and committed his soul to Christ. He knew where he was going. And the believers believed that as well. Death was still worth lamenting. And so they mourned for him and bury him. The contrast is that much more obvious when we turn back to Saul in verse 3. He is making havoc of the church while some are grieving and mourning Stephen's death. Saul is battling the church. This word havoc is a violent word. It's used very rarely in the New Testament. One other occurrence of it refers to wild boars ravaging their prey, right? So he's making havoc in the church. Entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Just imagine. Can can you imagine that kind of persecution to the church of Grimes instead of the church of Jerusalem? What if the, the local respected religious or political began knocking on doors? Do you believe in this Jesus? Dragging us off to prison. I mean, you can imagine this is intense and scary. And so the believers begin to be scattered, but notice the highlight of verse 4 those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. I mean, this is the, the very thing they're being arrested for, the very thing they're being dragged off to prison for the preaching of the message of the Lord Jesus Christ as Messiah. And as they're scattered, sort of running from prison, running for their lives maybe even, they continue preaching the Word. Talk about commitment to the mission of God, to doing what God had called them to do. And so the gospel goes forth regardless of the persecution. God is at work among His people, furthering the church, furthering the Christian faith. In verse 5, Luke zooms in on one specific example for us of this. One of those who was scattered, one of the deacons, one of the seven from Acts chapter uh, 6 that we learned about. Philip goes down to this, a city in Samaria. We're not told which city, but he goes down to one of the cities. It's actually sort of north, northeast. And down means Jerusalem was up on a hill, and so going down to Samaria is what that refers to. And so he goes there and he begins to preach Christ to Samaria. Now this, you know, we read that and it's like, oh yeah, of course, he goes to Samaria. It's surrounding territory, why would he not go there? But you have to understand the context in the Jewish mind. You may remember in Jesus' teaching that there was this great trouble between the Jews and the Samaritans. They were seen as enemies. In fact, it surprised many Jews that Jesus would even travel through Samaria. Samaria. And that he himself preached to them. Because for the Jews, they saw them as enemies. They were of a similar heritage line, but the Samaritans, in the eyes of the Jews, had kind of abandoned the faith. They they married outside of Israel, and they worshipped in different ways. They had some superstitions and other things like this. And so to them, they they were outcasts and even enemies. So, for these Jewish Christians, now Christians, but of Jewish heritage, to to go to the Samaritans and preach is a sign of the, the change of God in their lives. To love these people that, by their ethnic background, would have been hated. But the power of God is not bound by ethnic differences, is it? Our God saves all people, any who come to him by faith. And so Philip goes to Samaria and preaches Christ. And I love it in verse 6 that they heed him. They listen. They respond to the message of the gospel. And that's the focus. The word of Christ preached among these people. Now God had granted power to Philip, as we see at the end of verse 6 and verse 7 that there were some miracles he was able to do and some signs, some healing and things like that. And again, this was typical in the early church as this new message about Christ was going forth. God gave these signs and miracles to help affirm that word, that this is indeed the word of God as it's accompanied by the power of God. And so the conclusion in verse 8 is that there's just great joy In this city where the gospel is preached, while Saul is trying to tear down the church, wreaking havoc on the believers, the gospel goes forth and people are saved and there's joy at what God is doing. We see so clearly from this section that persecution can't stop the saving power of God. None can resist his saving work through the message of Jesus Christ. It can't be stopped. And even as it's resisted, it's almost like that propels it into further power as the believers are scattered and the message goes forth. And now those in Samaria begin to believe the church is expanding. I was talking with a friend recently who is a teacher. She teaches in high school and uh, teaches English specifically, and uh, we we were discussing how there has been uh, sort of an escalation in cheating as technology has advanced and so forth, and specifically in the realm of English, cheating is often in the form of plagiarism. So uh, taking someone else's work and, and claiming that it is your own. And she was, she was talking through how uh, their efforts as teachers to stop plagiarism have sort of shifted and changed. And as they make new efforts, kind of the students make new efforts in plagiarism. And so uh, as she was sharing this, she shared that, well, first of all, you know, you just, you just read the paper and look for, you know, exact phrases or things like that in someone else's paper, you know, within your class. And they even have found a resource online that teachers could use, and, and you could even search then without, outside of your own class uh, to see if they were plagiarizing someone else's material that was available on the internet somewhere. And so, so that resource, you know, really helped improve. Maybe they weren't cheating with someone in the class, but if they'd found it online, now they could tell. Well, so then students made some changes themselves, right? Okay, so now when I find something online, I just have to change the wording a little bit so this search engine doesn't find it. And so they realized they could, you know, take a couple words and switch them, and then it wouldn't pull it up as a match anymore. So then the teachers had to get a little bit more creative in hunting down the plagiarism, right? So now they were comparing with other teachers be- between classes and using the search engine online and all these tactics to try to hunt down the plagiarism. In one case, uh, you know, they had found this plagiarism between two students in different classes and then even gone to the parents and shown it to them. And, and uh, the parents didn't agree and there's this big battle over who was right and who had plagiarized and who hadn't and so on and so forth. What is all of that? Well, it's a battle for power, isn't it? Students wielding their brains and resources to try to get by with something easy. And as my sister described, or excuse me, my uh, friend who was (laughs) talking about all this, as she described how the students were doing all of this, it, it became obvious to me, like, wait a second, it takes far more work to even plagiarize now than it does to just write your own material. What's the problem? Fear of failure, fear of not getting the grade they want, and so doing everything in their power to guarantee the outcome that they desire at the same time, the teachers using their power to uh, stop the plagiarism. This battle for power is just an example of the way it can happen in education, for instance, but these kinds of battles for power wage all over the place where one group fights against another to be in control, to stop what the other is seeking to accomplish. What's beautiful about this first section is that nothing, not a thing, can stand against the saving power of God. In fact, as Saul tries to resist it, it only furthers the gospel as more come to faith in Christ. No resistance can stop God's saving power. It may be that you are seeking to resist God in your life. Like Saul, you're exerting all of your strength to push back against what God is doing in your life. Stop resisting. You're only making it more difficult for yourself. Your resistance can't slow God down. Saul, after his conversion, a number of times looks back on that time of persecution with deep regrets. As you know, God reaches into Saul's life and converts him to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have many of the Apostle Paul's writings looking back on this time with deep regret. Oh, that he hadn't resisted God's power during those years. It may be that you are here fearing the power of others against God, fearing even persecution. I'm thankful that in our country right now, in our culture, we we really don't face this kind of persecution. And by God's grace, we, we may never have to, but we may. It's not guaranteed to us that we will not face persecution, but friends, we need not fear it. We do not fear what the world seeks to do against the power of God because nothing can resist God's power. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, there's great confidence in participating in God's mission because nothing can stand against the mission of God. And as we participate in that, we participate in unstoppable mission. So as we go, we preach the word like these early believers taking the gospel wherever we we are. As we continue on in the story, verse 9 is sort of another zoom in here, right? So we start with all of this going on with Saul and Stephen. The gospel goes out. We zoom in on Philip. Now we zoom in a bit further into the city in Samaria, into an individual named Simon. Simon had been practicing sorcery in the city. Uh, It's the word magic, We don't know exactly what this is. It could either be just some sort of of sleight-of-hand tricks that he's doing, or I think more likely, as we saw back in verse 7, demonic activity was very present in this city, and so Simon had probably somehow begun to use demonic influence or power to do powerful things. And so the people of the city are astonished at what he's doing. Here's our key word again in verse 9, claiming he was someone great. He's looking for power for himself. Look what I can do. And indeed, they are astonished. They listen to him. Verse 10, they heed him from the least to the greatest. At every level in the city, they all looked up to Simon and his sorceries. Even saying at the end of verse 10, this man has the great power of God. There's are two key words bumped right up against each other. This this guy he this must be the power of God the great power of God and so there's almost a form of worship towards Simon here as they look up to him and heed him and listen to him So it begs the question in our minds as we come through the story at this point is now there's this competing power. There's Saul who was resisting and it's clear that God's power was greater but now there's Simon. Almost this competing power with God and it begs the question whose power is greater? So Verse 11 repeats the fact that they've been listening to this Simon for a long time. But verse 12 reveals the answer to our question. When they believe, Simon, believe Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. So God's power through the preaching of the word overcomes the power of Simon. Now they heed Philip and they believe. And after they've believed, they get baptized even simon himself as verse 13 points out even simon himself believes and is baptized and continues with philip but there's a hint of trouble at the end of verse 13 seeing the miracles and signs which were done a couple of things we notice first of all simon was amazed by philip's miracles that phrase is a kind of a fun reminder that as we put this magician, this sorcerer up against Philip, it's Simon, you know, using probably the demonic forces, who's amazed by the true power of God. And so he follows Philip. And even here we begin to wonder if Simon's heart is genuine. And I and I think the end of verse thirteen clues us in that it may not be, because he follows, he is amazed and follows Philip seeing the miracles and signs which are done. Now, the New King James translation doesn't highlight a key word that's actually there in that verse. The word miracles is a little two-word phrase, great power. The same two-word phrase that's used back in verse 10. As the people look to Simon as the great power of God, now seeing the great power of God through Philip, Simon's kind of tagging along. And I think this hints to us that This is really what he's after. He wants to be back on top again. We'll see how the story unfolds. The point of this section is that as Simon's power is put up against Philip's power, which is really the power of God, it's the Word of God working through the Spirit of God in the hearts of these people that wins out. There's no competition. Other powers can't compete with the saving power of God. We see this in relationships a lot of times. Call this uh, alpha competitions. Carrie and I were walking uh, at a local mall the other day. And all sorts of shoppers were out in various groups of people. And that we happen upon a group of boys, I would say probably junior high age, something like that. And we were just a few yards behind them, walking along the, the mall path there. And uh, it, it, within a matter of seconds, uh, Carrie and I looked at each other, and we both could tell who was the, you know, so to speak, alpha male of the group. It just become really obvious, right? Uh, one of them had kind of walked up to the group and told a joke, and they all kind of just ignored it, right? Okay, well, it's not him. And then we began to see one of them in the group that kind of began to be copied by the others. He looked back at one point, and then the rest of them all kind of looked back. Oh, that's interesting. He told a joke, and they all laughed, right? One of them had an idea. Hey, let's go over here and do this. No, 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 we're going to keep going. They all kept going, right? It became really clear. He happened to be the shortest one of the bunch, but it didn't matter because he was the alpha, Right? And in relationships, we often see that kind of struggle. You see it even in little children when they're playing, right? They're playing with toys, maybe they're playing house, maybe they're playing kitchen, whatever. I don't know what they're playing, right? But then one of them starts to give instructions. Okay, you're going to do this, and you're going to put this there, and you're going to do this, right? And it becomes a question. Is everybody going to fall in line and follow the instructions, or is there going to be a little competition for power here, right? This happens all the time in life, in relationships, and relationships. We like to pretend it's just for kids, but it happens with adults too, doesn't it? It happens with adults too. Often there's competing powers, who's in charge, who will be listened to. And this is what happens here with Simon now and then Philip as he comes to town. But it's clear, no one can compete with God's power. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. No power can match the power of God. No power can compete with his, So friends, we ought not to be distracted by the power of others. Whether it's through money that somebody tries to show their power or their authority or their position at the office or a leader in some realm or somebody who has power with words or somebody who tries to show their power literally with strength. These things need not distract us or astonish us or scare us. None can compete with God's power. But this kind of thinking can creep into the church as well. We can be quick to flock to those who seem to have some kind of power. This can happen with speakers. Oh, you've got to hear this guy speak. I mean, he just has a way with words. No, no. it's the power of God. You've got to read this new book that came out. Man, it is powerful. Without realizing it, we begin to hope in the wealthy or the talented or the charismatic, the leaders. But no power can compete with the power of God, especially in the church. We need His Word at work by the power of His Spirit in His people. And so we don't try to wield the power of God for ourselves. We do this so often. We We try to wield our own power against others. We raise our voice or we appeal to our works, the things we've done. I've earned this, right? We bargain with others. Maybe we even threaten to get our way. We mock. We put people down to put ourselves up. We blackmail. We appeal to people's emotions. All these things trying to leverage and control and gain what we want. But the real power in the church is not in our manipulative tactics. No, it's the power of God through the Word of God used by the Spirit of God in the hearts of God's people. Friends, you and I do not have the power to change hearts, do we? Praise God. Only God can. So the task for us is to get on board with what God is doing, to trust Him and to walk by faith. We begin to see Simon's response beginning in verse 14, but in order to explain what happens with Simon, Luke gives us some background information. And so this is still about Simon, but he doesn't come up again until verse 18, because something happens in verses 14 through 17. The apostles, still back at Jerusalem, hear about the faith that God is working in Samaria. They're excited about this, and so they send Peter and John to them. And we don't know all the reasons for this. It's not fully unfolded, but one of the reasons is that the believers in Samaria had not yet received the Holy Spirit. Well, that begs a question. Why not? Why had they not yet received the Holy Spirit? And again, we're answering sort of based on the clues we have from the text here. One clue we have through the book of Acts is that each time the gospel goes to a new people group, that people group doesn't receive the Holy Spirit until the apostles come and lay hands on them. We see this in Acts chapter 10, and we see this in Acts chapter 19. My interpretation of that, my understanding of what that means is that as as the gospel goes to new people groups, God was using the apostles, kind of a point of unity and foundation for the church to help the brothers and sisters in Christ begin to understand, oh, they really are a part of the body of Christ. And so the apostles come and they lay hands on them. And as you'll notice in those verses, 14, 15, and 16, they pray over them and by verse 17, they receive the Holy Spirit. And I think this is God's way of preserving the unity of the church using the apostles to go. Now the apostles could go back to Jerusalem and testify. We were there. We saw them. They trusted in Christ as Savior. We prayed over them. They received the Holy Spirit, right? And it would preserve the unity of the church, which would have been especially difficult between the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem and the Samaritan Christians in Samaria. This ethnic division that had taken place now could be crossed by the presence of the Holy Spirit and the testimony of the apostles that they had genuinely believed. So that's my take on what God is doing here to preserve the unity of the church. And when the apostles go, pray over them, receive the Holy Spirit, and be able to give testimony that they indeed are genuine believers, they're part now of the church, the universal church. And now we have a local church in Jerusalem and in Samaria. So God is at work in powerful ways. This leads us back to Simon in verse 18. The apostles arrive and and he sees this kind of unfold as they lay hands on these new believers. And these new believers receive the Holy Spirit. And there there must have been some kind of demonstration of power. The text doesn't tell us. We could guess. It might have looked like Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit first arrived on the believers there in Jerusalem. All we know is that there was something visible that happened because it says in verse 18, Simon saw that through the laying on of hands, the Holy Spirit was given. And here we begin to see a little bit of Simon's heart come out. What we suspected back in verse 13, we notice now he says, he offers them money and says in verse 19, give me this power that anyone in whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So Simon had seen the greater power of God's Holy Spirit. And now he wants more power for himself. Give me this power also, so that if I lay hands, they can receive the Holy Spirit. And he offers money. I, I don't think this is some innocent mistake on Simon's part. Just, you know, some confusion on how this all works. Peter, who we know has God's Spirit, has given some insight into what's going on in Simon, and he talks about that in the following verses. Peter says to him, Your money perish with you because you thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Somehow, by God's help, Peter could see into Simon's heart and know that this was not just an innocent mistake, an innocent request, but that Simon was seeking this power for himself. And based on Peter's words, your money perish with you, I think it's a clue that Simon had never truly believed in the first place. He had maybe said that he believed and been baptized with the rest and kind of followed after Peter, but I think his heart was after the power. So Peter's words seem harsh at first. Your money perish with you. But the idea is that This is futile. It's going to perish. The money and you with it, if you think that your power can earn you anything. Simon, I think, was not a true believer. He'd followed along in search of greater power. But God's saving power, as Peter points out, is a gift. As you read there, Your money perished with you in verse 20 because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. This gift of God, as referred to in the context, is not just salvation, but maybe the highlight of what's going on here, the Holy Spirit. That not only could God give cleansing of sins and eternal life, and we often speak of those things among that term, the gift of salvation, but here the gift of God is the giving of the Holy Spirit. And Simon had thought he could purchase that power He says, no, it's nothing like that at all. In fact, your heart is in the wrong place, so it's become clear you have, as he says in verse 21, you have no part nor portion in this matter. This section of the text reveals clearly that our efforts can't earn the saving power of God. Yes, no power can stand against God. Yes, no power can compete with Him, but it can't be earned either. Our works and our labors, even our money, does nothing to gain the power of God for ourselves. Can't make us right with God. Can't forgive us of our sins. God's saving power can't be earned by our efforts. I came across a uh, funny video recently of a little boy in a debate with his dad. And the dad is recording the video as this debate goes on. And Guy was pretty young. He he could speak, but there were still you know some cute words that he was saying in his speaking with his dad. And the debate was over whether the son was on the naughty or the nice list. As Christmas was approaching, uh, the dad was kind of uh, you know giving his son a hard time. You're on the nice. You're on the naughty list. Santa told me, and the boy was getting a little upset. Well, I can't be on the naughty list. I'm on the nice, don't stop saying that. I'm on the nice list. He was debating his dad. Well, the debate began to escalate a little bit as the dad continued to press. No, 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 he told me, you are on the naughty list. He said, Well, if Santa put me on the naughty list, I'll punch him. <laughs> the little boy says. And the dad said, well, that's not a very nice response. That's probably why he put you on the naughtiest. I am not on the naughtiest. I'll, I'll give him an uppercut and punch his beard right off, the boy says. Oh, <laughs> well, boy. As he's trying to persuade his dad that he deserves to be on the nice list, he's kind of proving maybe he ought to be on the naughty list. This kind of earning our place creeps into our thinking, even the way our culture thinks about Christmas, isn't it? Is it really a gift if it's based on whether you're on the nice or the naughty list? Doesn't that build into our thinking? There's something we do to earn our place and our gifts. But what God makes clear here is that the gift of God can't be earned. And that's a blessing for us. Because if it was based on whether we were on the nice list or the naughty list, we'd all end up on the naughty list and have no gift from God. But the gift of God comes by repentance and faith. So friends, it's important that we don't try to earn the saving power of God. We saw this kind of self-righteousness with the Pharisees, unwilling to admit their sin, clinging to their possession of the law and of the temple. And so they had to put Stephen down in order to defend their own righteousness. Sadly, we see a similar self righteousness in Simon here. He's trying to use God's power to make himself better, right? He, He had been the most respected in his town, and so if he could add this power to his resume, surely he would be on top once again. And so it's a reminder to us not to lean on our own efforts. We tend to think, if I do more good things, if I attend church faithfully, I'll start doing this, or I'll stop doing this. That somehow we can, by our efforts, earn God's salvation maybe, or in the Christian life, earn God's favor. But neither one come based on our efforts. Sometimes we trust then in our resources. We feel safe because our bank account is full. We can rest because we have good job security. We're at peace because of our network of friends. Well, if something comes up, I know a guy. We lean on our way with words. Just let me talk to him. We'll, we'll work this through. But see, our efforts don't earn the saving power of God. Our efforts are, are, are nothing. It's only by faith in the work of Jesus Christ. Not only is salvation brought to us in this way, but sanctification as well, as we lean on the Lord and trust in Him and rest in Christ. And that leads us then to the final section. I'm so thankful for this last section because Peter doesn't leave Simon hanging. I mean, he's just told him here, you have no part in, in the Holy Spirit. None. Let's talk about a statement that Simon is still lost. But then it's in verse 23 that he calls Simon to turn to the Lord. Repent, Therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Again, this is something that God allowed Peter to see in the heart of Simon. And it may be that it even begun to come out in his actions already. But somewhere in Simon's past, there was this bitterness that had enwrapped his own heart. Something had happened. Maybe maybe that was why Simon even got into uh, this demonic activity in the first place. We don't know. But Peter says you're bound by iniquity. You're you're chained to sin. And we know that description. We're familiar with that description. That's how the Bible describes us before we come to Christ. We're enslaved to our sin. So Peter calls him to repent turn to the Lord. The Lord can forgive you of your sins. Only God cleanses a sinful heart. Only God frees us from the bitterness that chokes us. Only God loosens the chains of our sin. And so Peter calls him here to repent. Sadly, I don't think Simon's response in verse 24 is a response of faith in Christ. In fact, I think it's still hinting at his own sense of who who has power here. Because rather than just trusting in God and accepting the gift of salvation, Simon kind of goes to the one that seems to have power in this context. Well, you pray for me. Maybe you've got it in with God. Maybe you have enough authority with Him to make sure these things don't happen to me. But He won't let go. He won't let go of His own power. He won't let go of His bitterness. He won't let go of His iniquity. He just doesn't want the consequences. And so he asked Peter, who seems to have some kind of in with God here, you pray to the Lord that these consequences won't come upon me, but he won't let go of his sin. This can be our response at times to the saving power of God. You pray for me. Or or instead of, appealing to, to someone who seems to be closer to God than us. We, we maybe start to do some good things and hope that that might you know, soften our consequences a little bit. But in our hearts, we're not willing to turn from our sin and to trust in Christ alone. It's only the work of Christ on the cross that saves us from our sin. So this text makes clear the theme which you see at the top Only those who repent and believe the gospel experience the saving power of God. See, God's saving power is simple and profound at the same time. It's only through the message of the gospel that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave that those who trust in Him alone receive forgiveness of sins and receive God's Spirit to dwell in them. 1 Corinthians 1.18, which I think is our memory verse for next week. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Romans 1.18 reminds us of this too. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. You see, the message of Christ, what He did for us, that's what we trust. To see God's power. It's only for those who repent and believe the gospel. So many try to team up with God. To add Him to their lives. To add Him to their labors. Say, well, I've got a pretty good thing going. And sure, maybe I'll just add God to it. His power and blessing in my life can only help the thing that I've built to go even better. But as we see in Simon here... It's turning away from our efforts and our works and our labors and our power and trusting alone in Christ that shows true faith in Christ. I wonder if you have laid down your labors, your efforts, your sense of power to trust in Christ alone. At first, it seems a difficult choice it doesn't make sense surely i must bring something to the table but the point is that we we leave it all off the table and just trust in jesus would you turn to the lord jesus christ in faith today to stop from your labors and your efforts Stop resisting what the Lord is doing in your life through the truth of the gospel and come to Jesus in faith today. Whoever comes to Him, He will never cast out. But I wonder for those of us who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, whether we are resting in the gospel and living in the power of God. Remember, the gift of God in this text is the Holy Spirit, everything we need for life and godliness through the Word of God, by the power of God's Spirit working in our lives. Are you resting? Or as a Christian, have you sort of taken control back from God and said, okay, thanks for salvation, I'll take it from here? We often try to chip in to the work of God in our lives, as if we've gone out to dinner and we we say to God, well, let me cover this one. I'll, I'll pay for dinner this time. But we really shortchange the value of the gospel when we do that. The point is that God paid for everything. So I don't come to Him with my efforts. I don't come to Him with my earnings, with my power, and say, well, look what I can do for you. No, I simply rest in what He has done, finished, completed, absolutely. And then say to Him, Yes, Lord, whatever you want, I'll do it. I'm there. I'm in. And I know I can only do it because You've given me Your Spirit. And so I'll lean on Him as I do it, and I'll do it in gratitude. We just trust Him and walk in His good works. I love the way Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 puts it. For by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus, completely new. That's me, I'm aside from verse 10 now. Completely new. Created in Christ Jesus, back to verse 10. Unto good works, which, this is the cool part, God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God does it all. Both salvation and the Christian life is just lived by faith. And then we just take the next step to walk in the good works that God has laid out and completely empowers us to do by His Spirit. This is not some battle for earnings or power or righteousness. It's just completely what He did. Thank you, Lord. Okay, I'll take that step. And so we trust Him. May I encourage you today, wherever you find yourself, whether it's in fear or in frustration, would you rest in the saving power of God through Christ? Would you trust in the one who died for you and rose again? Maybe you feel today that you've come to the end of yourself. Can I tell you there's no better place to be because there you can wholeheartedly, completely turn to Christ and rely on Him for everything, everything. Would you trust in Him today? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your saving power through the Lord Jesus Christ in whom You give us Your Spirit. We don't know how Simon's story ends. We have only what you've given to us in Scripture. But our stories are, in our lives at least, yet unwritten. You know. You know the end. You know all things. But I pray for us here today and those listening, Father, that we would turn to you in faith. In faith alone. Not leaning on our strength or our righteousness or our power or our wealth or whatever we have that we might look to, but that we would only look to You. Oh, open our eyes to see that our efforts are futile and that we would just rest in Christ and trust in Him and then, by His strength, to be on mission showing the world that Jesus is the Savior that God sent. We need your help, and we lean on you. In Christ's name, amen.